Hi, Drew. I emptied my bank account tonight into those evil machines. $1,500. I had managed to refrain from gambling for ages, but tonight I lost self-control. I just wanted to chill out at the pub and have a quiet drink, but ended up crashing and burning. It's so depressing. I'm half drunk now and feel like smashing every poker machine in sight, but realize the problems with doing that. I'm doing the walk of shame now. Broke again. I wish these machines weren't on every corner, in every pub. I just wanted to let myself relax a bit, but that's all. But now, how did these machines get so inside my head? How are they legal? It's not fair. I met a guy named Kenny tonight. He was playing a machine next to me. He seemed to be suffering from mental health issues, but I chatted with him anyways because playing pokies is a lonely hobby. I don't know how he had money to play because he told me that he was homeless and staying at a shelter in Surrey Hills. Didn't stop him from putting $20 after $20 into the machine he was playing. Anyway, I'm crying now. I hate those evil machines. Why are there so many of these fucking things? Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hi, and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name is Angus. You just heard journalist Drew Rook reading an email he received from a man he got to know during research for his book, One Last Spin, The Power and Peril of the Pokies. The man, Doug, is one of an estimated 115,000 people addicted to gambling in Australia. Of those, 75 to 80% are addicted because of pokey machines. Drew, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this book. Thank you for having me. So it's difficult to know where to start here because reading this book at points, it felt like I was reading a bit of a conspiracy theory and not to say that it's because the book is like unbelievable or speculative or anything. It's just that the extent to which the gambling industry has sway over everything from politics to academia is just so shocking. But you start the book with a comparison made by Katie O'Neill, who is a gambling counsellor you interview for the book, and she says Australia has pokies the way America has guns. What makes that comparison appropriate? I think everything that you have just expressed about your initial response, um, it's to do with the power of the gambling industry in politics, the power of the gambling industry in academia, the ubiquitousness of poker machines and the social acceptance of them in many ways. They are a product which in other countries exist only in casinos and yet in Australia we have them virtually on every street corner in suburban pubs and clubs. And the final element to that analogy is to do with the harm that poker machines cause, uh, which is immense and has been documented since they were legalised in the 90s. Australia has the highest amount of pokey machines per capita anywhere in the world as well. How did that come to be? It started in New South Wales as a result of extensive lobbying by particularly the club industry at the time in the mid-20th century. And after they were legalised in New South Wales, pressure to legalise them in other states gradually built. Um, 
And combined with that industry lobbying, there was also uh, dire economic circumstances um, across Australia, and in particular in Victoria and South Australia with the collapse of uh, the states, both states' state banks. And on top of all of that was a rise in the neoliberal political ideology, um, which has at its core this idea of deregulation and the idea that individuals should be able to choose what they want to do and government should not step in and prohibit that. So it was that cocktail of factors which led to governments eventually deciding to legalise them en masse. Yeah, the history of these pokey machines are, are really interesting and especially because, I mean, we're going back 100 years in terms of when they first sort of landed on our, on our shores. And that's interesting to think about because, you know, when you think of a pokey machine now, it's very computerised with the, you know, animations and the sound and the visuals. What did pokey machines look like when they first arrived? <laughs> they looked like uh, old-style cash registers uh, is probably the best description for the, for the old ones. They were a kind of countertop contraption. Um, they had a pull handle on the side. They had a very small viewing window with physical reels inside. And those physical reels had a limited number of stops. And there was one winning pay line uh, across the middle, which the symbols had to line up for a player to receive a prize. And that was the main uh, design of poker machines for the best part of best part of kind of 50, 60 years. And then, thanks to a series of technological developments, um, they became ever more sophisticated. First, they became electromechanical, and then, with the advent of computer technology, they became computerized and those physical reels that were in older machines were replaced with virtual reels, which allowed machine manufacturers to program the reels with as many number of symbols as they wished, allowed manufacturers to increase the number of pay lines. So there was no longer just a pay line across the middle row, but there was a pay line across the middle row, across the top row, across the bottom row, zigzagging up and down in whatever direction and allowed the manufacturers to increase the jackpots um, immensely because they were able to have a much better control over the odds of uh, the machines so that even if a massive win um, was awarded, the machine and the house would still come out on top because the amount of money that had been gambled through that machine was still more than the amount that was being paid out. And... Ever since that time when the poker machines started to become computerized, they've become even more um, developed and sophisticated. Now you have uh, poker machines featuring 3D, 3D technology, um, which I saw at a gambling expo in Macau that I attended. And that particular product um, was was far more sophisticated, I should add, than just having 3D technology. It had a slider 
on the screen that allowed a player to control how intense they wanted the 3D experience to be. They, it, the, the machine had a um, kind of accompanying multimedia chair, sort of like a, a arcade car racing game chair that kind of vibrated as a player won and had speakers positioned directly behind a player's ears so that the sound was um, delivered perfectly. And the machine also had uh, eye tracking, thermal eye tracking cameras, um, which, you know, tracked the position of a player's eye so that the images on the screen could be delivered most effectively. So the industry and manufacturers say that their main priority is entertainment. They look at what they're producing and selling as something akin to watching a film for purely entertainment purposes, do you buy that? Uh, no, that is not um, the primary reason that they are making machines. The primary reason they are making machines is to make money. And the primary way in which they do that is to, in their own words, um, as they speak amongst themselves, maximise a player's time on device. Sure, entertainment may be a byproduct of maximizing a player's time on device, um, but ultimately they are wanting to keep a player there for as long as possible. People do play poker machines for entertainment. There is no denying that. I spoke with countless people in gambling venues who did not have a gambling problem who said that they play just to pass the time for a bit of fun, um, to get out of the house. And they are valid reasons. And the industry will often, you know, cite reasons um, for people playing such as those. Uh, however, for over 100,000 other people in Australia, poker machines are not at all entertaining. They are incredibly destructive and ruinous, not just to their own lives, but to the lives of their relatives, their friends, and members of the wider community who suffer as a result. Um, it's a very convenient narrative to push that the poker machine, that poker machines are built for entertainment because it makes them seem benign, but they're not. Yeah, and I remember reading in your book you quote a researcher who says that this sort of state that a poker machine elicits on a user is sort of like this sensory deprivation type thing. So poker, poker machine manufacturers are striving to maximise a player's time on device and the way they are doing that is through trying to um, get the player to enter this state of mind where nothing else in the world matters. It's a very similar state of mind to um, what a Hungarian um, psychologist, uh, Mahali Csikszentmihalyi, named flow or the state of flow. And he studied that state of flow in athletes, in artists, in writers, and found that it was a very kind of enriching, um, enriching state of mind where, you know, they were very focused on 
or they were focused only on the thing that they were doing at that time, um, which was very productive and, and, and beneficial for them. That is the same state of mind which, is, uh, which poker machine manufacturers are trying to replicate um, in, a, in a gambler, um, but of course it is not enriching and beneficial. It's, it's very, very harmful. Um, the athletes and artists and writers which um, Chikset Mahali was studying, you could say were very mindful uh, gamblers who are playing poker machines are very mindless. Um, at least that's what poker machine manufacturers are trying to get them to be. And the methods in which they try to achieve that um, state of m mindlessness is are, are extraordinary. I mean, everything from the the volume of the sound, the key of the music, which is always in major, um, so as to be kind of uplifting and exciting. Um, the color of the artwork is always going to be kind of in pastel kind of positive colors. You're never going to see a black, brown or dull gray colored poker machine. Um, the themes are always um, based around kind of cultural mythologies or childhood fantasies or popular TV shows. Um, and then you have the mathematics um, of the game itself, which is configured in such a way so as to deliver the right-sized rewards at just the right intervals to keep a player engaged and focused and excited, um, but ultimately losing. And a lot of those, uh, a lot of those machines, or at least the design of those very successful machines, was pioneered right here in Australia. Um, so uh, I guess you could say that poker machines are one of Australia's greatest exports. <laughs> uh, more accurate would be poker machines are uh, one of Australia's most harmful exports. And what's really strange about pokey addiction, and I think makes it difficult for people to, to grapple with, is that nothing is ingested or injected or consumed. Um, and yet you call pokies a destructive drug. So how is gambling addiction similar to that of a drug addiction? Pokies elicit a response in the reward centre of a player's brain. And that part of the brain is the same part of the brain that is activated, yes, by uh, drugs of abuse, but it's also activated by anything that we as humans do. It's activated when we eat, it's activated when we have sex, it's activated when we exercise. It's the part of the brain that says that thing that you're doing is good. It feels good and therefore it is essential for survival. Drugs of abuse exploit that part of the brain because they produce a more, they produce a elevated response in that, which is much more, much, that is much stronger than uh, the response that food or sex produces. And that's due to the chemical makeup of certain drugs. Poker machines do the exact same thing 
But as you mentioned, there is nothing consumed or ingested. So then the question comes about how do poker machines do that? And the way they do that is there, there, is, a variety of, there is a variety of ways in which they do that. Um, one is that they deliver unpredicted rewards, which is really the key um, factor that needs to be understood. Um, experiments have shown that un unpredicted rewards produce a very strong response in the reward center of a human brain because it tells a person that that thing that you just did, you didn't know about before, it's good, you should keep doing it. So when we eat chocolate for the first time and we don't know what chocolate is, the response is going to be much more significant than on subsequent occasions that we eat it. With a poker machine, that un the unpredicted rewards are happening all the time. On every single win that a player receives, it's always going to be unpredicted because poker machines are random by nature. So every win is unpredicted, therefore every win produces a much more significant response in the human brain. On top of that, there are other features of poker machines such as losses disguised as wins, which is when the win that is delivered is um, actually smaller than the total wager that a player made. Um, and those losses disguised as wins are celebrated in the same form as a win. And on top of that, there is a feature known as near misses, which is when the outcome of a spin shows a um, arrangement of symbols, which is kind of just off a, a, a winning combination of symbols. And studies have shown that those near, those near misses elicit responses in the reward center of the brain. There, so. Each of those factors are important as a combination of factors. It's not, you can't, as was explained to me by a uh, gambling, uh, as a, by a neuroscientist who specializes in gambling addiction, you can't really pinpoint one of those factors and say that is the, that is the only thing that contributes to the addictiveness of poker machines. It's how they work in conjunction with each other. And in conjunction with each other, they are incredibly powerful and produce a very potent response. Okay, yeah. And it really struck me reading, I think, the account of Doug, who um, was a gambling addict and he had a really bad relapse when he went in and I think won something like $6,000. And he said that in that moment he felt invincible. And that's the same sort of language that people addicted to drugs like ice use, like when they're on that drug, they say, I feel invincible. So that just really drove home for me how, how similar the responses to these machines and say really hardcore drugs are. Um, so you got to know Doug and a number of other gambling addicts. What was it like to follow those people over the course of your research? Uh, it was, it was very shocking, um, and saddening. Um, they allowed me access to the deepest personal pains um, that they live with on a daily basis and shared with me what it's like to be addicted to poker machines, told me how they weren't able to pay gas bills, weren't able to pay electricity bills, weren't able to pay phone bills 
in Doug's case, um, he wasn't able to pay groceries, pay for groceries at um, certain moments during the peak of his addiction, and had had to smuggle out, um, had to smuggle out army rations uh, from from his workplace. And on top of those, uh, on top of that kind of material suffering comes the psychological suffering um, and the sense that you are worthless, you are weak, uh, you are incapable of controlling these urges that you have that you know if you act on are going to cause you further pain, but you're unable not to act on them in that moment because of how strong they are. And that, that, though those feelings are reinforced by the messages around kind of responsible gambling, which is the kind of key framework um, of governments across Australia for addressing gambling-related harm. Um, and the main message of responsible gambling is gamble responsibly which puts the onus onto the individual as opposed to on the industry to make a product that is responsible. Uh, so, you know, uh, as Doug and many other addicts who I interviewed for the book told me, seeing those messages on poker machines which say, you know, think of your family, think of tomorrow, think of your choices, made them feel even worse, because of course they've thought of their family, of thought, of course they've thought of tomorrow, of course they've thought about their choices. But that doesn't change the fact that they're still gambling and uh, unable in that moment to stop gambling because they are dealing with a very addictive product. This issue is most prevalent in disadvantaged areas. You know, we see lower socioeconomic areas spending the most on pokey machines, such as Fairfield in New South Wales, have just announced legislation to cap the amount of pokies being brought into Fairfield and areas like it. Why do you think disadvantaged areas are more susceptible to having gambling addiction problems? Um, because they are the areas where uh, manufacturers and operators put poker machines, firstly because they know that the individual risk factors are more prevalent in those areas. And thus, people are more likely to play poker machines um, there than they are than those, who, than those people who are living in more affluent areas. Um, on top of that, there are very few opportunities other than going to a venue which has poker machines uh, to socialize in those disadvantaged areas. Um, so people, if they do want to go out, really can only go to the pub or the local club. And those venues are largely orientated around poker machines, um, which are, they're, they're the kind of key, they're the key factors at play. And I mean, you mentioned the legislation which was recently, recently introduced in New South Wales to cap poker machines in disadvantaged areas. Um, a cap does not reduce the number of poker machines in a disadvantaged area. And 
to reduce the harm that poker machines cause in a disadvantaged area, you have to reduce the number of poker machines there. There is no other way to do that. Yeah. And if encouraging individuals to take responsibility for their own gambling doesn't work and increases stigma for gambling addicts, what are some methods that could work better? The methods have to target the design of the machines. There is a an abundance of evidence showing that the gamble responsibly gamble responsibly framework does not work. Um, it does not reduce the harm that gambling causes. And that evidence extends back to kind of 20 years. Um, so obviously the status quo approach isn't working. There needs to be first and foremost, a reduction in the maximum bets which are allowed on poker machines, which vary across Australian jurisdictions from between $5 to $10. Um, there should be a nationwide maximum bet of $1, which is the simplest and most effective harm minimization measure. Sure, it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve all gambling problems but it will help significantly if people are if people are limited in how much money they can bet how much money they can gamble then the harm is also limited because the amount of harm that is caused by gambling is dependent on the amount of money that is gambled so reduce the amount of money that can be gambled reduce the harm the other reason that that measure is uh, positive is that it doesn't or that it, it won't uh, affect the recreational value of poker machines because those people who play recreationally have been found to not bet more than $1. So it's only those people who are suffering significant gambling problems that do bet more than $1. So it's a very targeted, um, very targeted measure to those people who are, who are directly suffering. Um, and the other, the other measure which has been recommended by experts um, for many years, as well as the Productivity Commission in 2010, is mandatory pre-commitment, um, which basically means that before you sit down to play a poker machine, before you enter that state of flow and kind of mindlessness that a poker machine elicits, you have to pre-commit to how much you are willing to lose whilst you are playing. And once you reach that limit, then you are locked out for a certain period of time from not just that one machine that you're playing, but from, from others, in, um, others in the area. And that measure um, to work has to have a kind of accompanying card that um, needs to be inserted into a machine um, in order to play and that card will be personalized for each individual player. It could be very easy to um, implement and is not, as the industry likes to say, a kind of invasion of privacy. Um, there are <laughs> numerous loyalty programs that exist in these gambling venues where gamblers sign up to a loyalty program anyway. Um, and insert their card, and on that card is is a huge amount of detail about the gambling patterns of of 
of the, the player who owns that card. Um, and I guess another, another measure, which is certainly worthy of consideration and I would say implementation is removing poker machines from, uh, community venues such as pubs and clubs but I think such a measure won't happen for some time um, much longer um, than the implementation of one dollar maximum bets on mandatory pre-commitment um, because it would require a kind of radical overhaul of the business model of many of these venues and it's it, it wouldn't result in the um, disappearance of pubs and clubs as Western Australia, the case of Western Australia proves. Um, but it would require a, a bit of hard work, a bit of creativity, um, and thought about how to reorientate a business so that it is not based on the, uh, provision of a very harmful product, which to me seems like a pretty um, worthy pursuit. Absolutely. But I mean, you write in your book that some of the biggest clubs in New South Wales, are, I think on average 60% of their revenue comes in from poking machines. In terms of the bigger ones, it's up to 85%. And we're talking like 60, 80, 90 million dollars just from pokies. So when they're making, when they're raking in that sort of profit, like what hope do we have to see those measures implemented? <laughs> it's a, that's a good question. Um, I think there, I think there is some hope, um, but it will require a lot of persistent and hard advocacy, which is happening now, and there are developments, um, there are developments, there, there are recent developments which indicate a kind of shift in public opinion and also government attitudes towards, um, towards gambling and poker machines. I don't think there's any hope for that overhaul happening anytime soon, um, soon kind of being in the next couple of years. Um, but there are numerous groups out there who have been pushing and fighting very, very hard for reform in this area and are growing more and more, so much so that the gambling industry writes in its own, um, in its own industry magazines about the kind of rise of these, um, as they like to call them, anti-Australian groups. Um, so I guess it, I guess sit tight would be, would be, uh, what I would say, but there, there are, there is, there is some hope. Yeah. Yeah. And what barriers are there for reform in terms of the politics of this issue? The main barrier is the power of the gambling industry. Um, they and they derive that power from um, a variety of ways. One, they are positioned in communities and um, members of the community often have a very strong allegiance with these venues because it's often the only place that 
they uh, can socialise and go to, especially in regional areas of Australia. Um, and as one uh, lobbying expert said to me, you know, clubs in particular, uh, they, they play a very similar role as churches once did in Australian society. Um, they have a very captive and, and, and dedicated um, visitor base and often those people have a stronger allegiance to the club than they do to any political party. The second um, way that the gambling industry derives its power is through political donations and they have been very, very generous over the years in donating to um, politicians and political parties from across the political spectrum, basically whatever party is advocating um, for policies in their favour. And at the moment, it's uh, both major parties, um, both federally and in Australian states. So how to overcome those uh one way would be to um, push for political donation reform, which is already happening. Um, and I guess uh, there is evidence that those obstacles are already being at least slowly overcome. Um, and that evidence in particular comes from Tasmania, um, where in the most recent state election, uh, Tasmanian Labor announced its new gambling policy, uh, which was to remove pokies from pubs and clubs, which was a really radical development um, in a state where the gambling industry had both major parties wound around um, its little finger. And sure, Tasmania, Tasmanian Labor lost that election, but the sheer fact that a major political party made such a radical policy announcement is really significant and should not be um, should not be discounted. The eventual kind of defeat of big tobacco required years and years, decades um, of consistent kind of fighting. Um, and, you know, it took a lot of failed attempts before any meaningful reform um, was implemented and before, you know, victory in the form of plain packaging laws was implemented. Yeah. And what's the situation in New South Wales with this memorandum of understanding between the industry and the government? Um, so there are there are two memorandums of understanding that have uh, been signed. The first in 2010 and the first in 2014. Um, and those memorandums of understanding are between Clubs New South Wales and the Liberal National Coalition government. And they stipulate the gambling policy uh, of the coalition government, which is policy written by the gambling industry, or at least written um, with the assistance of the gambling industry. Um, it's probably the worst example of 
the industry's power um, over state politics. In worst in worst example of the industry's power in state uh, politics, um, they the the memorandums of understanding saw a increase in the um, in the amount of cash that could be paid out um, when a when a jackpot was won um, from uh, two thousand to five thousand um, dollars. Anything above that could be um, paid. Used to be able to be paid in check form, um, and there was a, a removal of the kind of cap on the number of electronic uh, casino table games that could be operated by clubs, and a variety of other measures, all of which were beneficial to the gambling industry and ultimately the government as well because it would produce more taxation revenue. And those measures were sold under the banner of uh, reducing uh, red tape, which is a favoured justification um, for uh, further deregulation of any industry. For the book, you interviewed Nick Xenophon about this, who started on an anti-pokey platform, I think. And he said, if governments are willing to have families break up, people lose homes, people lose their life savings, and in some cases, people losing their lives because of gambling, then what else are they getting wrong? So has writing this book changed your perception or maybe undermined your faith in how our politics and government operates? Yes. That's a strong yes. Yeah. Um, I see the case of poker machines and gambling in Australia as being indicative of many other failures of government. Um, it's a very simple, or it's, it's a very big problem, um, but one that has a pretty simple fix. Um, governments can step in and say, we're going to reduce the harm that this product causes by uh, reducing the maximum bet, by re- by implementing mandatory pre-commitment measures, which a whole array of public health experts have recommended, um, but they're not doing that. And why? Because of the power of the industry. And that is immensely problematic because it's sacrificing the welfare of, of citizens uh, for the benefit of themselves and of their mates. And you see that happening in so many other, um, in so many other, um, policy areas and it's incredibly sad and depressing, but I guess the, the silver lining, I guess, is that there are, there are so many people in community, in the community across Australia who are fighting back and who are achieving um, wins, however small they may be, but they're still fighting and putting up the resistance um, against the government and against the industry. And I think there is there's there's a lot in that. I mean, yeah, yeah, my faith in in politics um, has has waned from writing this book. But my faith in um, the Australian public has has increased. 
Nice to end on a note of hope. One Last Spin is out now from Scribe Publications. It's a really engaging and brilliant piece of journalism and it's available from bookshops including Good Readings, online bookshop at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Drew, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much.